Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1. Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. And now that we're firmly into school season, this week is all about education. So on today's show, we're gonna tackle three big questions. One, can you learn things that you don't think you are any good at? Two, do politics belong on campus? And three, what was it like when colleges opened up to a group that had once been barred from attending? But let's start with that campus politics one. This summer, a poll from the Pew Research Center revealed that Democrats and people who lean Democrat believe that colleges and universities are generally good for America. Republicans and those who lean Republican believe exactly the opposite. And the split is huge. For many Republicans, their feelings can be summed up in two words, liberal elite. And certainly, thinking of professors as liberal is correct. They overwhelmingly lean left. Elite is kind of a different question. Most professors are not rolling in money, so it depends on how you define elite. But back to the liberal thing. How did professors as a group become so liberal? And who cares? There are not actually that many professors in the country, so why does it matter what their ideology is? Sam Abrams is a professor at Sarah Lawrence College who has researched the ideological diversity at universities around the country. Sam, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I know you've looked at this in terms of data, and I want to dig into that. But first, let's just go back to that big picture question, which is, even if professors are overwhelmingly liberal, does it matter? I mean, clearly, the country is fairly evenly split, Republican and Democrat. So whatever the effect of liberalism on campus is, it somehow seems to be balanced out by culture overall. So does this matter? I think it does. I think if you look to where social movements around the country have started, they, they start on our colleges and universities. It's hard to look back to the 60s and not think about protests mm -hmm. uh, around the nation, whether it's Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young songs about Youngstown, Ohio, or, or we think about uh, protests uh, against Ronald Reagan in, in the 1980s at, at People's Park in Berkeley. So much of our nation's cultural capital, where ideas come from, where movements start, where ideas are formed, these are engines of innovation, engines of ideas, they, they emanate from our universities. If we look at where around the country uh, we see a lot of growth and development, where tech is starting, where meds, uh, so the term is meds and eds, where mm -hmm. you know all of this sort of work occurs, it's at our colleges and universities. So while I completely agree that the number of faculty in this country is not huge whatsoever, right, right. Uh, there is a very outsized influence that, that faculty have. So I, I think that what we as a community of faculty do uh, does shape quite a bit about how we see the country and how we engage both domestically and globally as well. So explain the numbers that you found in your research in terms of like how professors are split ideologically. What we found, or what I found rather, was that in the 60s up until today, if you take a look at the ideological balance of Americans, it hasn't really moved 
quite frankly. Hmm. You know, Americans lean a little bit to the right on the ideological spectrum, and that's been the case for the past 50 or 60 years. If we look at then college students over the same time period, it is definitely the case that in the 1960s, college students did lean pretty progressive, pretty liberal. And by the 1970s, mid-1970s, they leaned slight left. And they've been leaning slight left ever since. And this is college students. These are college students, yes, indeed. So we have college students leaning slight left, except in the 60s when they were much more left. But since the 70s, they've been slight left. The American public has been very stable, uh, slight right. And I've spent uh, over a decade looking at that. And then the interesting group are faculty. So in the 1960s, the faculty were actually less progressive, less left of center than the students that they were teaching. And they were slight left until the mid to late 90s. By the mid to late 90s, professors started veering way left, so much so that if you take a look at the data, you know, they're just on a, on a different planet on average uh, compared to both the American populace at large and then the very students that they teach. And, and what percentage of professors did you say say they lean like very much to the left? Uh, you're looking at uh, 60 to 65 percent. Really? Okay. But and then the American public as a whole? Uh, not that much. Uh, 10, 12, 15 percent. Okay, month, that is a huge difference. But exactly. here's, here is my other question. You said that in the 60s, in the 70s, uh, professors in the 80s, professors said, oh, yeah, we lean slightly left. Um, But then something like 20 years ago, people started to move, professors started to say, we lean very left. Yes. Right. Exactly right. What happened in the in the 90s or how did that shift occur? Can you tell? Yes. So a couple of things. The first is this principle that we have in the social sciences called homophily. And that is basically the idea that birds of a feather flock together. People like to be around like-minded people, for better or for worse. Uh, and we see this uh, in, in practically every dimension, whether it's it's musical tastes, housing tastes. You know, some people are, are suburban types. Other people definitely like urban. And we have this sorting effect that, that occurs. And we see this all over nature and, and in various facets of, of human life. So, you know, you're going to see people who go into academia have a particular bend and it tends to be more liberal. And as more and more people become more liberal, it, it, it sort of has this multiplying effect. It's a lot easier to be part of the dominant group that way. So that's one of the, the causes. Uh, and the other is, quite frankly, that professors began to see themselves differently in the 1990s. They began to see themselves as much more of this professional class. And what I mean by that mm. is they saw this as these, you know, they're not just teachers, but they're teacher scholars, they're teacher activists. And one of the things that changed very, very strongly was that it's not just you teach ideas, but you can also teach activism and social change through that. If you look at various scholarly groups and and, and even uh, the mission statement of, of, of places like Sarah Lawrence, it's not just education for the sake of education. It's education for the sense of impacting social change with it. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Sam Abrams, a professor at Sarah Lawrence College who's researched the ideological diversity of professors around the country. Uh, Give me a sense of the geography here. Do more conservative parts of the country have more conservative professors? Do more liberal parts of the country have more liberal professors? Sure. So it's a great question, and I thank you very much for asking it. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. Uh, Nick Kristoff, 
uh, had a series in the New York Times uh, about uh, you know the, this imbalance of faculty on college campuses, and he took a lot of heat because he kept focusing on a select number of small liberal arts colleges. We hear quite a bit about Oberlin, for instance. Uh, the New Yorker did a huge piece on that, and we we obviously uh, have heard about Middlebury after the Charles Murray. Uh, related violence. Uh, so in trying to parse this out, one of the things that uh, there's been a lot of attention to is, is it small liberal arts colleges? Is it just these elite liberal arts colleges full of liberal faculty taking these positions? Uh, I have some data uh, that has uh, looked at tens of thousands of faculty every year for the, for the last 25 years, and uh, I can answer that very empirically and very comfortably, and the answer is no. People hmm. look to liberal arts colleges as sort of these um, I don't know, leaders for this liberal movement, but actually it's very evenly dispersed across college types. Uh, big universities that are public, we see the uh, very strong liberal lean. Uh, private universities, we see a strong liberal lean. Uh, we even see a liberal lean among Catholic and religious schools. It's a little less intense, but it, it, it's pretty much uniformly liberal leaning around the country. Uh, in terms of geography, are certain areas a little more uh, liberal than others? The answer is yes. Uh, New England is, is, is far more liberal. It's much harder to find a conservative professor or a, a hard right professor in mm. the New England area. But it is not the case that, in contrast, the South or parts of the uh, the West, thinking Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, are, are conservative. They're all left-leaning. Conservative students have talked about coming to campus and finding few professors or a few other conservative students to talk to. What have you seen in your own experience? Do you feel like that's an issue or or, or not not so much? No, I, I think the conservative students are, are exactly right. And I think it is a disaster for higher education, quite frankly. And I don't use the word disaster lightly. Students need to be free to question. And when a student is in a seminar or in a lecture and has a question and is afraid to ask it because they know that if it's misperceived or misunderstood or perceived to be uh, problematic in some way, uh, ideologically, or a question that might uh, promote some form of harm uh, to others based on trigger warnings and safe spaces and so on, that is the antithesis of what we're supposed to do as professors. Obviously, we're not supposed to promote things like bigotry, racism, homophobia, and, and I don't know anyone who would uh, agree uh, that that's something we should be talking about. But when students can't ask questions, that's the problem. Have you ever been in a class where um, there's a lot of tension in the room because either you or students are not sure what kinds of ideas or questions or whatever like cross a line that you're not, you know, that you feel like, uh oh, what if that's unacceptable? Absolutely. And it happens all the time. And it's an honor for me when that happens because it means someone let their guard down enough to be honest and to expose themselves a little bit. And that, and you know, when that happens, I jump up and I immediately take control because if you feel that there's some tension or something weird happened, that's where my experience as someone who's feeling now much older than his or his students, I, I felt <laughs> a lot, you know, I, I feel like I'm aging quite a bit that way, <laughs> but it's my job with my 15 years of experience doing this to say, let's talk about this, let's break this down. See, it's so tricky because uh, like, where do you draw the line? If somebody, I can't, I, I can't answer. That. I know, I, mean, I know. The Supreme and, Court even says, you know, you'll know it when you see right. it in, in, in a lot of these but areas. But it's, sure. it's even tricky. I don't even know that I would know it when I saw it. Like, okay, so I think a lot of people would say, well, if you had a member of the Klan speak, well, that that's unacceptable. You wouldn't invite that person. But but then, what if somebody said, well, but how about somebody who championed a war that mm -hmm. maybe uh, was a needless war and killed tens of thousands of people? 
Absolutely. How about that person? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I like which is worse. I mean, I, I these are these are like super hard things to figure out. Exactly. I mean, the the Klan is obviously a much easier case than say someone who championed uh, you know the, the Gulf War or something like that. But again, this is where faculty should be adults and discuss it. And faculty should say, look, we're comfortable with this. We're not comfortable with this. They should be asking, are we limiting viewpoints by doing this? What is this person going to say? Should we present an alternative perspective or should we straight out ban the person from coming? And while I can't give, a, again, a bright line answer, my, my hope would be that faculty would sort of step up and, and sort of say, we demand some form of balance. The point of, of some of this research that I've done is to show that it's hard for faculty demand, to demand balance when there's already no balance on college campuses whatsoever. So if we can reestablish that balance, that would be good. Some people have encouraged things like a litmus test or affirmative action for professors or things like that. Litmus tests are very scary. That's the antithesis of, of, of what uh, I think free inquiry is about. Affirmative action for professors based on ideology is also a very scary con you know, idea to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how I would define it. In fact, I wouldn't want you to label me liberal or conservative. I'm very comfortably in the middle. Uh, so I would hate it if someone says, well, actually, no, we're going to classify you as a conservative. I, I don't like that. I wouldn't want that. Uh, in that regard. Do, do you ever get like the cold shoulder from your colleagues or push back or feel like, oh, gosh, I, you know, all the time. I, I wish you weren't talking about this. this yes, is not, all the time. Yeah, okay. I have regularly been ostracized at Sarah Lawrence. I'm happy to say this on on the air. Uh, it's very uncomfortable to me. I, I, we regularly have issues with certain searches in certain fields because I don't think there's enough diversity in those fields about how they're taught or their perspectives. Uh, that the people are brought in uh, to teach. You know, the, my colleagues want a certain way of seeing the world. I say, you know, we already have five people who see it that way. Let's try to bring in someone else with a different viewpoint mm. on this very question. Um, it has led to a lot of trouble for me. That being said, I have tenure. I'm very comfortable now that I have that. And, you know, I'm pushing for this because I think my position is correct, which is simply it, we're doing a disservice to our students if we don't present this multiplicity of ideas. Sam Abrams is a professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College. He's also a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Sam, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Teach your children well. Their father's hell did slowly go by. If you're wondering, like I was, what defines right-leaning or left-leaning and whether there are sets of issues that you have to subscribe to, the answer is no. Abram says he classifies students, professors, ordinary people the way that they classify themselves. And interesting to note, faculty in the humanities tend to be more left-leaning than those in math, science, and engineering. In 2004, there was a big chess tournament in Reykjavik, and the best player in the world, Garry Kasparov, was slated to play a 13-year-old. Except that Kasparov didn't show up to the match. The kid he was supposed to play, Magnus Carlsen, waited, he got something to drink, other people's matches were starting all around him, and then finally, Kasparov showed up. When he did, he was 100% laser-focused. He put his head in his hands, he looked really intently at the board, and Carlson focused too, mostly. He also wandered around the room sometimes while he was waiting for Kasparov to make his next move. He may not have known it when he was getting up, but what Carlson was doing was supercharging his brain. And by the way, he played Kasparov to a draw. 
Barbara Oakley talks about the advantages of losing concentration and a whole bunch of other strategies to retrain your brain in A Mind for Numbers, How to Excel at Math and Science. She's a professor of engineering at Oakland University in Michigan, and she also happens to teach one of the most popular online courses in the world on learning how to learn. Barbara, it's great to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Kara. So you are an engineer now, as I just said, um, but as a kid, you didn't like math. Why didn't you like it? I loathed it. It, w- it was, I'm embarrassed to say this now, it, it's so ironic, but I basically flunked my way through elementary, middle, and high school math and science. I mean, I was one of those kids who just doesn't get math, and I, right. I just knew that that wasn't something I could do in my career, and uh, that was totally wrong, as I eventually found out. <laughs> uh, so now I'm a professor of engineering. <laughs> well, so interestingly, unlike many of the people who, who say to themselves, yeah, I'm just not a math person, that's not my thing, that clearly somewhere uh, turned around for you. Uh, so when did, when did that change? Well, I, I, I thought, since I can't do math and science, I would love to learn another language. And I grew up in a resolutely monolingual household. You can guess what language I spoke. But <laughs> I, I enlisted in the Army because that was a way I could learn language and actually get paid for it. And I did learn a language. I picked Russian sort of on a whim. And then I found out that here I was, 26 years old, about to get out of the military, and guess what? (laughs) There's not much demand for people whose sole career expertise is the ability to speak Russian. So (laughs) that's when I figured, you know, maybe it would be a good idea to see if I can open my mind, since I like to experience new things, and see if I can learn math and science. And it wasn't easy. What made you motivated enough? I mean, because there's lots of other things you could have said, well, I'm going to, you know, uh, try to be a copy editor at a newspaper. Like, there's lots of other things you could do without ever sort of opening the math and science textbooks. What made you think, no, I'm like, I'm really going to try to do this, even though my track record doesn't look good at all? I think it was the fact that when I was in the military, I worked with all these West Point engineers. And what I saw was these individuals had these problem-solving skills that were pretty cool. And at first I thought, oh, it's just because they're super smart naturally, and I'm not just not that way. But then I began to realize, wait a minute, no, it's their training. And that training is actually something that anybody can get. And I think the real key for my long-term success was I just sucked it all up and went back to the bottom. I went back to remedial high school algebra and started there and slowly worked my way back up. I didn't try to jump too far ahead. And that was a big, uh, big part of the success, I think. What did you do uh, differently that second time in terms of like that second time here you are mid 20s post learning Russian trying to learn math again what did you do differently that second time that, than what you had done in elementary school that really worked that made things stick in your mind that made things make sense with each other it was the fact that I had learned another language oddly enough I learned how to practice and repeat and 
get some kind of procedural fluency. You know, you practice enough with verb conjugations and they make sense and they come naturally. And so when I started applying those same ways of learning with language to learning math and science, it actually worked great. I just, I would pick a problem and then I'd see if I could work it cold and I often couldn't. And so I'd try again and I'd get so I could look at a problem and solve it almost like playing a song in my mind. And that, as it turns out, is a very good way neuroscientifically to gain expertise in virtually any subject. So do you subscribe to the idea that I, that I think a lot of people have, which is that there's kind of a left brain, right brain divide, and you've got left brain people and right brain people, and some people are just better suited to learning languages and reading literature, and some people are really just better suited to you know being in a chemistry lab? I, I don't subscribe to that at all. I do think that there are some things that we naturally can feel like we're better at and that, and that we are better at. But because we're better at it, we practice at it more and then we get better at it. And so we kind of fall into this pathway of, I'm only good at this particular topic as opposed to another one. And the reality is though, that my personal belief is, if you aren't so easy with learning in math and science, and you kind of push yourself and you start learning those, you're actually using sort of different neural circuitry than the typical person who's super good at it. And because you're using different neural circuitry, you can actually learn it more deeply and more creatively. So I, I think of it sometimes like this. Sometimes we think, oh, there's these superstar race car brains. They learn so quickly. I'm just a hiker. I mean, I can get there, but I'm so slow. But the hiker has a completely different experience. They can reach right. out. They can touch the leaves. They can see the little rabbit paths. They can smell the pine in the air. And in many ways, it's far richer and deeper. Yeah, and you might be able to see problems or issues that the other person just sped right by because they understood it too well. Exactly right. In fact, mm. Nobel Prize winner Santiago Ramon y Cajal used to say one of the biggest problems with the many geniuses that he worked with, geniuses who, unlike him, did not win the Nobel Prize, was that they would <laughs> jump to conclusions and then they couldn't switch their mind. They weren't used to being wrong. And so they were inflexible. So slower but more careful learning can often get you places where even the geniuses can't go. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Barbara Oakley, author of A Mind for Numbers. She's also a professor of engineering at Oakland University. Um, you write about the difference between focusing intently, which is how most of us think about learning. Like you, you've got that math textbook, you open it up, and you sit down and you really think about a problem and you either do well with it or you don't. Um, but but there's there's sort of there's a difference between that and not focusing intently. And actually, I didn't realize this, but both of them are very important. That's a great point. When you focus intently, it's sort of like having an excavator that that digs in and gets everything put into that that big front loader part. But when you take a little time afterwards and just relax and not think about anything in particular or change your focus of attention, 
that allows that excavator to turn around, sort of mentally speaking in your brain, and consolidate to kind of restructure and organize the material in your brain. And you're, com- you're not aware of this at all, but it's a very important step in the learning process. So it's kind of like we often think, oh, I'm only learning when I'm focusing. But when you take those little breaks, that's when the learning continues. It's sort of like a uh, you put a roast in the oven, you take it out, it continues to cook some. Well, and, uh, you know, this is not uh, something that's new to smart people. Um, Thomas Edison took naps. Carl Sandburg took walks. So people seem to have known for a while uh, people who had these kind of effective strategies for moving themselves forward in their professions, that they needed kind of time off that wasn't 100% time off, like their brain was still doing some marinating somehow. That's right. In fact, what Thomas Edison used to do was he would sometimes sit in a chair with ball bearings in his hand, and he relax, relax away, just kind of vaguely cogitating on a problem, a technological problem that he had, and he'd relax and relax, and just as he'd relax so much, at least according to legend, that he'd fall asleep, the ball bearings would fall from his hands, the clatter would wake him up, and he'd take those ideas from that relaxed thinking back into the focus mode where he could refine and analyze them. And that was the idea. He was trying to, it was like a little alarm clock he had going on. Exactly right. In fact, Salvador Dali used to do the same thing. He used keys in his hand to think about his art. You know, we talked at the beginning about um, how you originally went through school and thought, I'm just not a math person. This is totally not for me. Uh, But that that obviously changed. And then you're a professor of engineering now. Um, So there's a lot of people in that camp who would say, I'm not a math person. I'm not a science person. Things totally fell apart when I was taking those courses. If people better understood the principles of math and science, if like many more Americans could sort of get over that hump and really start to learn some of that stuff. How do you think it would change our society? I think that we would be, that it would be a a boon for society, that it would be some, that we'd be much less likely to fall into sort of passionate Uh, appeals to emotion that actually don't make rational sense when you really look at them. And that would be a a great boon for society just to have. And even we found through studies that the simple ability to know enough math to understand mortgage payments and the idea behind them Mm -hmm. means that you are far less likely to default on your mortgage. So we often think, oh, I can get by just fine without any math skills. But that's really not true. Uh, it, It has all sorts of little subtle influences on the way you think. Sometimes people will say, well, what's the purpose of learning math and so forth? Uh, I'll never use it. And I remember I said that to my eighth grade dean of students when I got in trouble for reading in math class. But... (laughs) But it's sort of like um, saying, why do I ever work out on that Nautilus set at the gym? I will never walk out in the middle of the street and see a Nautilus set and have to lift weights like that. But what that Nautilus set, that particular exercise mechanism is doing is 
is building certain muscles. And math, in, in a very real sense, builds some intellectual muscles that can allow you to grapple with things that may not look directly relevant to math, mm-hmm. but they are. Barbara Oakley is a professor of engineering at Oakland University. She's also the author of A Mind for Numbers, How to Excel at Math and Science. Barbara, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. On our Facebook page, by the way, we've got a link to Barbara Oakley's free online course on learning how to learn. Kara Miller, and you're listening to Innovation Hub. So now, something that's going to make bookworms everywhere happy. Researchers have discovered a link between reading and longevity. If you read more, there's a good chance you're going to live longer. The study, which was published in the journal Social Science and Medicine, found that book readers live 23 months longer, not controlling for factors like gender, race, and education. Avni Bavishi, who co-authored the study, says she's loved books ever since she was a kid. But as she went through school, reading time kind of got crowded out by classes and by other commitments. I was just a little bit curious because I was a heavy reader myself when I was a child, and it's died down a bit over the years as school's gotten more and more busy. And I was curious what kinds of benefits outside of the um, creative benefits and the vocabulary building that everybody hears about reading might present with. So when I was looking in the literature a little bit, I had seen that there were some mixed results in previous studies about whether or not reading might actually have the ability to extend your life. So I thought it would be an interesting thing to see if we could find um, a larger database that might help us sort this out. What Bavishi found, and this is a quote from the study, was that books are protective regardless of gender, wealth, education, or health. But note the word books, because apparently... Not all reading is created equal. Another interesting thing that we found is that the survival advantage was more substantial for reading books than it was for reading newspapers or magazines or periodicals. So that, we thought, might indicate that there's some sort of a cognitive difference between the two processes. And when we looked into seeing why reading books might uh, allow you to live longer, we found that people who were reading books experienced less of a cognitive decline as they aged compared to those who didn't. And we think that that might be the reason that they are living longer. Bavishi took her data from a national survey for retired people. On even-numbered years, the survey would ask retirees how much they read. On odd-numbered years, retirees answered questions that tested their cognitive abilities. She also measured how much someone might need to read to see any difference in lifespan. The more you read, the more of a benefit you get. We saw that even those who were reading on average three hours a week, so that's about less than 30 minutes a day, saw a significant improvement in their longevity. But Bavishi is quick to caution. Those three hours are only for book readers. Magazine aficionados need to read a lot more than three hours a week to see any benefit. Why the difference? We think that reading books really gives you a sort of uh, deep dive into the literature that really enhances the neural connections that you're making, and you're able to do a lot more in terms of preserving the cognitive function as you age. And there have been a variety of studies done previously that I've talked about how cognitive decline, whether it's through Alzheimer's or a variety of mechanisms, decreases your lifespan. So we think that reading books, because you have to get so much more invested, they're so much longer, there's often a lot more themes than you get in a magazine article, 
we believe that all of these factors make it more likely that you'll be more cognitively engaged when reading a book. I asked Bavishi, who calls herself a bookworm, whether she's been reading any more since she did the study. I've been trying to. I've definitely been trying to. (laughs) She told me the last thing she read was the book When Breath Becomes Air, a memoir by the neurosurgeon Paul Kalanithi. We've got a link to Avni Bavishi's study on how reading books may affect your longevity that's on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. By the late 1960s, there were a lot of movements for equality and respect that were in full swing. Civil rights, women's rights, student rights. But there were still places in the halls of power where not a whole lot had changed, and a new world did not seem inevitable. One Yale graduate who had heard that coeducation might be coming to Yale wrote to his alumni magazine, quote, Gentlemen, let's face it. Charming as women are, they get to be a drag if you're forced to associate with them each and every day. Think of the poor student who has a steady date, he wants to concentrate on the basic principles of thermodynamics, but she keeps trying to gossip about the idiotic trivia all women try to impose on men. That letter writer was far from alone in his feelings. But change was coming. And for some of these elite schools, it would be one of the biggest changes in hundreds of years. Nancy Weiss Malkiel writes about those years of change in Keep the Damn Women Out, the struggle for coeducation. She's a professor emeritus of history at Princeton. Nancy, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, Kara. You read one of my favorite quotes. <laughs> that is quite a quote, isn't it? Um, so before some of those most elite schools started going co-ed in the late 60s and the early 70s, What was college education uh, like for women and what were their options? Because clearly, you know, the Yales, the Princetons, those were off the table. For almost a century, the preferred option for the most talented women high school students was to go to a women's college, ideally a Seven Sisters school if they were uh, able to win admission. And by that, I mean, of course, Smith, Wellesley, Mount Holyoke, Radcliffe, Barnard, uh, Bryn Mawr. There were other options. There were other women's colleges, many other women's colleges, in fact. And there were co-ed schools. There had been co-ed schools in the United States since the 19th century. Schools like Oberlin, Mm -hmm. uh, private institutions, many of the major universities, the land-grant universities especially, and private institutions like Stanford and Chicago, founded Mm -hmm. in the last decade of the 19th century. So there were chances for women to go to school with men, but the most talented women students, if you will, the women students whose credentials paralleled those of the men who were going to Princeton and Yale, we're going to women's colleges. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then, you know, here you get to the late 1960s, still, still these places, uh, these elite institutions are all men. A lot of men who have been there feel very strongly, let's keep it that way. Okay, what starts to turn the tide? Because as you point out, within a few years, like, it's shocking how many places go co-ed. It's not like it happens slowly. It happens like in a big bang. 
It's a flood of decisions in a very short space of time. We have to set the context. The 1960s provide uh, an important context with, as you said, the women's movement, the student movement, the anti-war movement, the civil rights uh, movement. There's enormous upheaval in the 1960s, and universities at the end of the decade look very different from what they had looked like at the beginning of the decade. Men and women protest together. They engage in registering black voters together. The notion that they wouldn't go to school together seems uh, increasingly anachronistic. But the real trigger for the change is that admission patterns begin to change. Yale and Princeton in particular experience this, and they're the prime movers here. Mm. What they begin to see is that the high school students they lovingly refer to as the best boys are beginning to show in their application patterns and in their decisions once offered admission that they don't want to go to schools that are all male anymore. They want to go to school with girls. And that is what makes these schools pay attention and decide to act. So what they imagine is that if they admit women, it will be a way of retaining their hold on these best boys. Mm. It will be a way of recovering. It will be a way of competing more effectively with Harvard. This is the point where Harvard begins to pull away from Princeton and Yale. They had gone head-to-head in admissions for a long time before this. As recently as the early 1960s, they had been competing evenly. Well, Harvard has Radcliffe up the street. And so by the late 1960s, Harvard is pulling away from Princeton and Yale. Princeton and Yale don't like this. So admitting women becomes the strategic means of regaining their hold on the best men. So women are admitted not because there's a moral commitment to educating women, not because of some high-minded conviction about the education of women, but because having women will presumably improve the education of men. Yeah, that's interesting. Not for equality, but to beat Harvard. Yeah, like, you know, let's keep our priorities straight kind of thing. Absolutely. Right. So we talked a little bit about this, but talk about the forces or the people who arrayed themselves against coeducation, who when this began to be discussed said, this is a mistake, don't do this. Like, how strong were those forces? Who were they? Explain that. Uh, The alumni of these institutions were generally not happy about uh, the idea of coeducation. The title of my book comes from a letter from a Dartmouth alumnus to the chair of the Dartmouth trustees in 1970. This is a Dartmouth alumnus class of 1929, and he, with Dartmouth considering coeducation, he wrote, for God's sake, for Dartmouth's sake, and for everyone's sake, keep the damned women out. Uh, He was very representative Mm. of uh, the alumni of these institutions. The Princeton alumni uh, had colorful language that very well matched uh, that Yale (laughs) alumnus you quoted, describing coeducation as a nutty idea. Uh, It would be easier, one of them wrote, to establish an old-fashioned whorehouse and a lot less expensive. People believed that if Princeton 
or to coeducate Princeton as they knew it would be dead. These alumni had wonderful experiences at these all-male institutions. They had great pride in uh, the education that they had obtained, in the all-male camaraderie they had experienced, which had set them on an excellent course for their lives. These were friends they made who would be important social and professional connections going forward. The notion that anyone would tamper with that sounded to them like heresy. So I'm sure you've talked to a lot of the first women who who got into and went to some of these schools. Tell me like a couple of stories that you remember that struck you about like, you know, things they said or experiences that they had in those first years. It was very challenging. These were brave young women who imagined that they would be pioneers that it would be an adventure, that there was something special to be gained by uh, being among the first women at schools undergoing major uh, transformation. And so it was exciting. But at the same time, it was really tough. They were under a microscope. The press was all over them, Mm. swarming the campus. And their fellow students and their teachers simply didn't know how to deal with them. Some examples, the student who says that she walked into a study room in Firestone Library at Princeton, 40 men in the room studying. She walked in and a giggle started around the room. And she said she left and never went back because it was just so awkward. Hmm. Men swarming the dormitories where the women lived, uh, trying to gain dates, but at the same time, reluctant to ask for dates because there were so many more men than women that the men figured the women already had dates lined Hmm. up, and why ask and be shot down? So the Princeton women I knew in the early years of coeducation would lament that they were staying home on Saturday night because the guys (laughs) simply hadn't asked them out. The experience in the classroom was extremely awkward. Usually there were one, maybe two women in in a class, and the students didn't know what to make of her, and the instructors certainly uh, didn't. People would always ask the women's students for the women's point of view, Mm. and that made sense, perhaps, if it was a course in literature or psychology where a gendered point of view might be relevant, but math or physics. Um, <laughs> What's the woman's um, point of view on calculus? Like there's well, a divide exactly. maybe. Yeah. Um, instructors were really tough on these first uh, women. An art history professor at Dartmouth would post uh, slides of nudes on the screen and run his hand up and down the thighs of the nudes. Um, There were faculty members at Yale who repeatedly reminded the women students that their arrival was the cause of the fact that the men could no longer uh, walk naked and swim naked in Payne Whitney Gymnasium. (laughs) (laughs) A faculty member at Yale, the chair of the history department, was asked by a new woman student if he would consider offering a course in women's history. And he responded, that would be like teaching the history of dogs. One Princeton woman in the first co-ed class said, 
that she had never felt so alone as a woman and that her experience as an American field service student in India in high school had uh, been extremely valuable to her because she felt at Princeton as though she was in a foreign country. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I bet a lot of those professors, too, felt like they weren't listened to in the decision you know, to go co-ed. Oh, and they were. And, right. And and that this had, like, been forced on them. And, you know, the decision could be forced on them, but nobody could force, you know, the way they were going to act. Like, nobody could tell them what to do. Exactly. So I should add to this. You joined the Princeton faculty in 1969, right as this avalanche of schools is starting to go co-ed. When did Princeton go co-ed? In 1969. So the first women students arrived as I uh, joined the faculty. What did you see? Like when you went home at the end of the day, what did you think? Well, this was all new to me. I had been a graduate student at Harvard, and then I came to Princeton as a faculty member. My my advisor at Harvard, Frank Friedel, for whom I was uh, teaching sections in a new black history course in the fall of 1968, recommended me for the job at Princeton and laughed when he told me that. And I laughed because there were no women at Princeton. And he said, but it would be good for them to have to think about it. So when I arrived for my interview at Princeton in the fall of 1968, the history department chair said, it isn't that we have a policy against hiring women. It's that no one's ever suggested it before. (laughs) (laughs) So I was coming into a world in which the men didn't know what to make of me. I didn't know what to make of the men. And as I say, the whole thing was new to me. Mm. I walked into my first classes in the history department comprised uh, entirely of men. And all the young men in the class stood up when I walked in and pulled out my chair. Uh, This was a discussion, uh, Mm. a precept. And that went on for a little while. One of my advisees brought an apple to me in my office uh, hours. (laughs) On my course evaluations, I got comments like, um, there is less idle joking in your classes, or you teach from a feminine point of view. So there was a lot of learning going on on uh, all uh, sides, and I was participating in and watching an institution in the midst of a really fundamental uh, change. Probably I didn't appreciate as fully as I might uh, the dimensions of that change uh, as I was living it. So at that time, and and still today, um, most Americans are not college graduates, and certainly even most Americans who've gone to college didn't go to this tiny sliver um, of elite schools. So I wonder how you think this move towards coeducation has impacted the country more broadly or if it or if it has well what it has done is to open uh, to talented women every educational opportunity historically available to talented men and that means uh, that women have unfettered access to the best faculty, the best 
laboratory and library resources, the best opportunities for uh, learning at the highest level. Now, that doesn't affect the broad population, except that people who are educated in these institutions hold a disproportionate share of the leadership positions in our society generally, in the professions, at least uh, up until this point, in uh, public life. And it matters that those opportunities are available equally to women as well as to men. Nancy weiss Malkiel is a professor emeritus of history at Princeton. She's also the author of Keep the Damn Women Out, The Struggle for Coeducation. Nancy, thank you so much for this great conversation. Kara, thank you. It's been a pleasure. We've got more on our website about why some schools did admit women early on and then either changed their minds or pulled back a little, like, for example, Stanford. Early in the 1890s, it became very clear that there were many women coming to Stanford and they were doing very well, on average, better than the men. Mrs. Stanford, Malkiel says, was worried that Stanford would be overrun by women. We've got more on schools that had similar concerns. That's at innovationhub.org. to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org.